Hello, this is Randy Sutton, retired police lieutenant and the founder of The Wounded Blue, the national assistance and support organization for injured and disabled law enforcement officers and the author of A Cop's Life with another episode of The Voice for American Law Enforcement. And you are either watching this or listening to it on the America Out Loud Network or on YouTube. Welcome to the show. Uh, during this show, we talk about all things law enforcement from a law enforcement perspective the real stories behind the headlines. I have a wonderful co-host with me today. Um, I'm going to read you his bio because I'll never remember it if I just tried to re remember it. Uh, Brandon Griffith. And Brandon is, a, uh, is the founder and CEO of Griffith Blue Heart Nonprofit, which specializes in preparing, training, and equipping law enforcement for resuscitation emergencies like cardiac arrest and hemorrhage control. Brandon is an Arizona police officer, multidiscipline instructor, former EMT, and an out-of-hospital sudden cardiac arrest survivor. That's what we're going to be talking a lot about today. Uh, Brandon is, is the founding board member of Arizona Cardiac Arrest Survivors Group, and he sits on the Arizona Department of Health Services Heart Disease and Stroke Work Group. Brandon has been honored to be awarded the Heroism Award, countless life-saving awards, Recognized by both the Phoenix Business Journal and Citizen CPR Foundation 40 Under 40 programs and is a recipient of the Congressional Recognition for his actions as a police officer and his life-saving programs. His proudest accomplishment, however, in life is marrying his high school sweetheart and fathering two incredible children. I'd like to uh, welcome Brandon to the show. Thanks so much for joining me today. Hey, good morning, Randy. Thank you for having me on, brother. So you've got some amazing stories um, concerning your surviving uh, a, a sudden cardiac incident. You know, before we get into talking about the news and and, and um, I'd like the I'd like the listeners and the viewers to know a little bit more about you. If you would go into a little bit of your history as a police officer, and then the life changing uh, moment that you uh, that you experienced. Yeah, absolutely. I started my law enforcement journey back in 2008, and I've been lucky enough to work as a field training officer. I've worked as a defensive tactics instructor, firearms instructor, uh, crisis intervention. And uh, shortly before my cardiac incident, I had just made my department SWAT team. And literally my life changed in a heartbeat. Uh, I was being a police officer. I wish I could tell you I was doing something cool. I wish I could tell you I was in a foot pursuit or a fight, but like four out of five cases, I was at home and I was reading a damn book. So I'm sitting with my wife, I put the book down to say, hey, I'm gonna take the dog out. And it just hit me like a freight train. If you've ever had someone jump out and scare you, you know, when your heart skips that beat, imagine that flutter feeling, but nonstop. And even though I collapsed in about a second and a half, I experienced time distortion. So everything just slowed way down on me. I remember thinking something's not right. And my wife turned around to see me in lockjaw she said my face was the darkest purple she'd ever seen and I'm doing agonal breathing, which is kind of wisping and trying to force myself to breathe. But when you're in cardiac arrest, your lungs cannot expand with oxygen. So I was literally sitting there going, <laughs> trying to force something to happen, but I collapsed into my bookshelf. My wife immediately calls 911, puts the phone on speaker and drops it. She tries to brace me as I'm falling forward, but I'm six foot four. She's about five foot three. So I toppled right over her and put my head through the wall. I'm landing on my hands and my knees. 
and I'm trying to do combat breathing, but like I said, your lungs won't expand with oxygen. So I'm sitting in this moment watching my vision go out, but it's not like normal tunnel vision where you're looking through a coffee straw. This is dark, dark purple where it's kind of fluttering out. And at this moment, I have all this training here. I was a former EMT and there is absolutely nothing I can do to save my own life. I was watching myself die. And at that moment I collapsed. My wife rolls me on my back. She starts doing CPR on me. She worked on me for about four and a half minutes before the first police officer arrived. She had to stop, you know, pull the dog back, open the front door. This fellow officer comes in. He was not equipped with an AED, but he jumped on my chest without even thinking. He did a phenomenal job doing hands-only CPR. He worked on me until about the nine, nine and a half minute mark when fire and EMS arrived. They dragged my body in my living room where they got more room to work. They IO drilled me. I mean, they, they defibrillated me several times. They got lots of shocks and about the 16 and a half minute mark is when I was finally resuscitated. My wife said, you know, I'm, I woke up, started pushing guys off me. I don't really remember that portion of it. I do remember the sway of the gurney and hearing their footsteps on their rocks uh, in my front yard. According to the crew, I was cracking jokes in the back of the ambulance, you know, calling them hose draggers. My wife had told me not to leave her. I told her I wouldn't. And the next five days is what really is the blur. Most cardiac survivors don't remember their incidents. They get told about it afterwards. But I remember every detail in mine. But the next five days as my brain was recovering from oxygen deprivation, I was in and out. Here they're putting a defibrillator in my chest. And now all of a sudden I'm 26 years old and I'm facing forced medical retirement. And I had to fight to return back to full active duty. There are so many questions I have that... Um... So, so your heart stopped. Is there any medical reason? I mean, was there ever, did you ever figure out why your heart just stopped? I'm really glad you asked that. So anytime you say cardiac, the first thing people jump to is a heart attack, right? Well, a heart attack is a plumbing issue where you have like a, a clogged artery and a portion of the heart's not getting oxygenated blood. Those are 95% survivable. What I experienced was a cardiac arrest, which is electrical. I mean, imagine you plug in a Christmas tree and it shorts out. That's what it was. Basically, an electrical misfire caused your heart to go into either ventricular fibrillation, where it's kind of in this quivering state, or ventricular tachycardia, where it's beating so fast that there's no blood being pumped to the rest of your body. It's like someone flipped a light switch and you collapse instantly. There's no blood going to your brain. There's no blood going to the rest of your body. And that's what I experienced. And they never found a diagnosis. They did every test possible. They ran me through all kinds of uh, MRIs and echocardiograms, and they brought my blood down to a chromosomic level and couldn't even find genetic mutations. Uh, it's currently, you know, heart disease is our number one cause of death, and more than half of those are cardiac arrests, and young athletic males are actually at the highest risk. So there's a lot of stigmas around it, but people think that, oh, you must have been something wrong with you. There must be something genetic. You must have been eating too many cheeseburgers. I mean, I was in phenomenal shape. I just made my SWAT team. I was no stress. I was at home reading a book when it happened. So it wasn't like something caused this. It's just one of those from the, from the time you're in the wound to the day you die, your heart sends electrical impulses to make it beat in the right sequence. One misfire is all it takes for you to drop dead. That is, that's just an incredible story. Um, now I, I have a, another question. So you're, you were basically dead for 16 minutes. You weren't being oxygenated. How did you not get brain damage from that that lack of oxygen you know they say that after about four minutes without oxygen the brain starts to, to die and you start having brain damage i mean my wife will tell you that she thought i was brain damaged before this incident so <laughs> uh, 
the, the real key to it, the, I think that I'm very fortunate because my wife was in the room when I collapsed. So many people are by themselves or, you know, they get found or people are reluctant. Bystanders won't jump on your chest. My wife, me and her were EMTs together, so she knew exactly what to do and she jumped into action immediately. So although I wasn't getting blood or oxygen to my brain the traditional way, she was manually pumping my heart, forcing the oxygenated blood cells that were left in my body to circulate through my brain. So your red blood cells can actually hold oxygen for up to like 14 minutes or something like that. So because of her and that officer doing CPR, I had less brain damage on the survivors. And a lot of survivors don't come out as well as I have. I mean, they've got brain fog issues, difficulty finding words, irritability, you know, memory gaps. I'm very fortunate. So I, mean, I also had a lot of head traumas before this too. <laughs> wow, that, that, it's just an incredible story. Um, now, let's talk about what happened in the aftermath. That um, How long had you been a police officer when this occurred? So I started my journey in 2008, and this was in 2014. So I, I had been hired with Phoenix Police Department in 2008. My entire academy class was the first one laid off with the hiring freezes in the recession. So I was back to the drawing board, even though I was on payroll, I had to go back to the academy. I had to go to the academy for another agency, and I got picked up with Buckeye. So here I'd only been with Buckeye for this limited amount of time. I was already a DT instructor in FTO when I, when I had my incident. How did you, I mean, there, there must have been, a, I think you alluded to it, uh, a real struggle getting back, uh, getting back to work. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, it's hard because, you know, as soon as anyone sees a healthy 26-year-old drop dead, they think there's got to be something wrong with you. They want to label you as damaged goods and they look at you as a liability. So I had to fight to keep my job. I mean, here I was facing losing everything I worked so hard to get a part of, this brotherhood, this, this second family, this, this, this meaningful work that I'm doing. And it, it's kind of a struggle because I had to prove that not only was I able to do the job with no accommodations, but I'm safer than any other officer. So I had to change mindsets. I had to bring in uh, cardiac arrest researchers and I had to, to fight and do all these challenges because not only am I a medication to prevent another cardiac incident, I get yearly checkups on my heart that other officers don't get. And I have a defibrillator implanted in my chest to shock me instantly if I drop dead. Every other member on that department is at a higher risk going into cardiac arrest than I am. If they do, they need CPR and AED immediately, and they still only have a one out of 10 chance of making it. So here I get shocked instantly, I was safer, and I had to prove that fact. I'm one of the only, if not the only officers to return to full active duty with an AACD implanted in my chest. And I'm currently helping some other firefighters and first responders try to return and do the same and survive because there's nothing wrong with them. They're completely healthy. And here we have all these officers with hypertension, clogged arteries. We got these other guys that are overweight, diabetic, and they're perfectly fine. But as soon as you get a precautionary medical device in you, everyone wants to tiptoe around you and treat you like you're a fragile doll. So I had to, you know, outrun, outbench, outfight most of my guys just to get them to realize there was nothing wrong with me. It took me a while to break through those stigmas and realize that I wasn't some fragile China doll. Did, uh, did the department treat you, um, did they treat you well or, or did, did they, how did, how did your, your own agency uh, treat you after this happened? You know, I, Chief Mark Mann at the time was an absolute godsend. I mean, he, was, he had my back from that moment around in the hospital. He was standing with me to, to come back to work. He was a huge champion of mine. And you know, obviously my brothers had my back. 
I thank God for them. I mean, the entire time I was out on medical leave, they donated PTO and comp time. So I was paid in full the entire six months that I was out of work doing my cardiac rehab and fighting to go back to work. So, I mean, the guys were absolutely awesome. It was when I returned, they were kind of like, hey, can you do this with your heart condition? Are you sure you're okay? You know, you'd go out and go hands-on with a suspect and you have a sergeant roll on scene and say, hey, we're going to have your heart checked out. Hell you are. There's nothing wrong with my heart. Like, you can ask me, are you okay? Do you need medical attention? And that's it. So there's a lot of stigmas. Your medical information gets spread out there. Even before I was doing the nonprofit work and publicly speaking about it, your stuff is out there. So it's it's kind of a challenge to overcome. There's a lot of stigmas. And a lot of people don't realize how much higher risk police are at cardiovascular disease because of sleep deprivation, caffeine addiction, not being able to work out properly, uh, glandular fatigue, you name it, and it's something that cops don't take too seriously until it happens to them. And it happens all the time. Every day a cop is dropping from a heart attack, from a stroke, from cardiac arrest. And I, I know you're very familiar with this. <laughs> you can you can say that again. Of course, both as, as a survivor of a stroke and then having had uh, multiple bypass surgery, um, I'm, I, I, I feel you. Let me put it that way. And, uh, you know, I'm so happy that your leadership of your agency treated you with humanity and with, um, uh, you know, the ability to continue on um, financially because of, of the brotherhood. That's really good to hear. It doesn't happen like that uh, everywhere for sure. Now, of course, one question that, that comes to mind is you always hear about these uh, death experiences where people are, are resuscitated and they have stories about what took place when they were when they were when they were dead um did you have any experience like that i did and it's something that i've taken a lot of passion in. i've talked to near-death physicians and researchers that study this for a living and there's there's a whole bunch of different insights to this you know you talk to some of these guys and there's a, there's a marker for the first seven minutes of death From my understanding of it the first seven minutes, your brain is still able to process things like neurons and the chemicals our bodies make. So like, you know, cortisol, adrenaline, dopamine, dimethyltriamine, all these different things that can cause hallucinations and make you see stuff, that can occur within the seven, first seven minutes. But the way it was explained to me was after that seven mark, minute mark, your brain should not be able to process that stuff. So those aren't considered like hallucinations and whatnot. So I've talked to several police officers, other survivors, not just from cardiac incidents, but from, you know, gunshot wounds, suicide attempts, drownings. And usually the people that were resuscitated very quickly within those first few minutes, those are the stories you hear where they floated above the surgical state, the table, you know, they saw family members, they saw a white light, their life flashed before their eyes. For me, I didn't get that white light or that flashing. I, I definitely felt the sensation and I was transported to this absolute black calming state. I, I can't call it a dream because I was very much conscious, but I'm in this like black lulling state where it's like a whole different plane of existence. So it's very hard to articulate, but I'm looking around going, you know, where the hell am I? What is going on here? And that there was no, no fear. There was no sense of pain. It was the most happy, surreal, and best feeling I've ever experienced. And I definitely had somebody with me. I don't know if it was God, a family member, guardian angel, but somebody that I was communicating with. And I had a conversation that has been a real driving factor for the rest of my life. But, you know, when I was resuscitated back, when I was eventually shot back, it was like someone flipped the light switch and just, I was 
back in my body and I can't tell you the pain that I was experiencing. I mean, my head hadn't been properly oxygenated for over 16 and a half minutes. So just every single heartbeat, it felt like someone was taking a sledgehammer to the top of my head. My chest had been caved in. For those of us that have been tased, you know, that metallic taste. And I actually had real blood in my mouth when they put the OPA in. The IO drilled me through my leg. So I tried to get electrical conductivity back. My arms and legs, you know, and you have that pins and needle feeling when you fall asleep. Imagine that on steroids. I mean, I can't describe just that utter pain, but at the same time, it was a feeling of relief because, you know, here I was, I was still alive and I was given a second chance. You can't be alive without feeling that pain. So it was... There was a dichotomy of emotions in that minute. Incredible story. Incredible story. Now, you know, when when I wrote my last book, I got the opportunity to talk to people that had experienced a great deal of trauma, either physically or emotionally or loss. And as a result of that, they went on to to do great things with their lives, um, you know, create nonprofit organizations to help others. And, and you've created a nonprofit yourself. If you would, let's talk about that for a bit. Oh, I'd love to. So, you know, I, I had no interest in doing anything like this at first. All I wanted to do was get back to being a police officer. I, I didn't want to speak. I didn't want to share my story. I wanted to bury my head in the sand and kind of move along with my life. You know, I didn't want that to be a defining moment. So uh, it wasn't until this cardiac arrest researcher, he was the former Arizona State Trauma EMS Director, Dr. Ben Balbro, he's actually one of the creators of the Hanson CPR, brought me in to talk. And I started speaking to him about it because I was asking him for help to return to work. And he asked me to come and speak at an event. I said, look, man, I'm a street cop. You don't want to put me in front of people. I'm not a public speaker. Like, I just, I just want to go back to work. He said, we'll come out. We're going to be recognized as some of the survivors. If you feel up for it, then you can talk a little bit. If not, don't. And when I showed up, I ended up getting inspired with some of these other survivors that were speaking and some of these other storytellers that were sharing their experiences. And I ended up speaking for a minute. And afterwards, this family and this, this high school girl came up and gave me a big hug. And, you know, she had a genetic defect in her heart. It was basically waiting for her day that she collapses and talked about how comforted she was by what I said. In that moment is when I realized how big of a difference I could make. But when I returned back to the field, I'm looking around and I realized how unprepared law enforcement as a whole for resuscitation emergencies. I mean, only about 15% of agencies around the country have AEDs, and most of us get very poor training. You're lucky if you get like a refresher every one to three years and it's like, hey, here's a PowerPoint, jump on this mannequin, do some clickers. No one's focusing on high performance resuscitation. So I, I saw a real need there. And what started off as like a side gig, just talking to other police departments about the needs to get AED programs, they started seeing the, the need for it and said, you know what, this is a no-brainer. We need to do it. But then I had to create the playbook because there was nothing in place. You know, I needed to create policies from scratch, dispatch protocols, sustainability planning, medical direction assistance. So we had to bring in experts and policy writers and create these programs from scratch. And me and my director of training ended up creating the Advanced Law Enforcement Resuscitation Academy. As our programs expanded and we started teaching officers high-performance resuscitation, our background was very much in the SWAT side of things. So we, one of the things cops do very well is reality-based training for uh, shootings, for active shooters, hostage rescue barricade situations, but no one was taking that methodology towards actual resuscitation something. If you look at it, we had what, 1,100 fatal police shootings last year, 690,000 Americans died from heart disease. What are we more likely to come across? 
So we created a program to put officers through reality-based scenarios with actors and evaluators and feedback mannequins where they're actually working on fellow officers who collapse at inopportune moments, you know, vehicle accidents, drownings, hemorrhage control, because people, a lot of cops don't know that blood loss induces cardiac arrest too. So not only putting on a tourniquet or packing a wound, but that person's heart stops and you all of a sudden you or stops beating properly and you have to actually put on start fibrillating and doing CPR. So it just kept growing and growing and growing. And eventually we said, you know what, we're already looking to get donations and grants for police departments and helping them obtain fundings. Why don't we just get our nonprofit status? So we ended up getting becoming a 501c3 public charity. Now we raise funds to donate AEDs for law enforcement. We end up doing trainings for them. We help them with policies, grant writing, dispatch protocols. We, we're kind of an all-inclusive package deal, and we're helping them. Currently, with February being Heart Month, we just launched our uh, Help Cops Save Lives charity giving campaign. So if anybody listening would like to support some of these programs and help us out, you know, we're, we're asking people to donate just $25 to help us further with police resuscitation programs and save as many lives as possible because police are our fastest first responders. We're on scene first 90% of the time. We're usually on scene within that first one to four and a half minutes when we have the highest probability of resuscitation. Your average fire and EMS guys aren't getting there until about eight to 16 minutes. And even from there, it's about three to 11 minutes from the time to first shock. So we know every single second matters in these incidents for every minute you wait to initiate CPR, the chances of survival go down you know, 10%. So had my wife had done CPR on me when she did, I would have had almost 50% chance of death had the officer got on scene and went, oh shit, tell fire to hurry up. I would I, I would not be here today. Had they waited for the fire and EMS to get on scene for nine and a half minutes, I would have had a 90% chance of death. Incredible story. And your organization is uh, is literally saving lives. So um, I appreciate what you're doing. And uh, of course, the Law Enforcement Survival Summit that will be uh, held this year, I think that uh, your uh, your instruction, I think, will be uh, very beneficial for that uh, particular summit. The spirit of American liberty and justice is woven into the soul of America out loud. We are the voice of a nation, the American nation, that is. This is Malcolm Out Loud. I invite you back to AmericaOutloud.com, where the fight for liberty and justice continues. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep can be infuriating. Your mind races, you toss and turn, and the harder you try, the harder it is to drift off. And today's digital age makes it even harder. You're not alone with this struggle. Poor sleep affects over 70% of Americans. Even the Centers for Disease Control labeled insufficient sleep a public health epidemic. To take back your sleep, Healthy Cell has created REM Sleep, the only sleep supplement made to support all four stages of human sleep with calming herbs, amino acids, and sleep hormone support delivered in a patent-pending, pill-free, ultra-absorption microgel formula that tastes great. Fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deeply, and wake up refreshed with Healthy Cell's REM Sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L, and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. 
Let's talk about some of the things that are happening in law enforcement today. Of course, you're still actively involved as a, uh, as a reserve officer in Arizona. You're training other police officers. You're very passionate about, about the job and about the people who, uh, who are, who are uh, you know, standing in the line. And so we've got a, a bunch of news stories that let's, uh, I would like to talk about. Um, first, let's talk about, this is a, this is a headline um, that uh, they came out just uh, on the Daily Mail, actually. Furious National Police Union demands Jen Psaki apologize for laughing off America's concerns over soft on crime policies from the safety of the White House. And uh, Patrick Yoz, who is the Fraternal Order Police President, said, I think it's wrong, very wrong for Ms. Psaki to suggest that violent crime in our country is of no concern or to just laugh it off. On Fox is Janine Piero talking about soft on crime consequences. And the um, Jen Psaki said, what does that even mean? There's an alternative universe on some coverage, Psaki said. What's scary about is a lot of people watch that. Um, it's, it's incredible, the, the fact that the White House uh, doesn't even, they don't even acknowledge that the policies put in place uh, that are, they're not, they're not made up, they're reality. Uh, they were talking about um, low bail, no bail in, in cities across the United States. We're talking about no consequences for criminal activity. We're talking about lack of prosecutions. Um, so, uh, you know, the, the fact is, um, you know, she, la she laughed off concerns despite a 510% nationwide spike in carjackings over the last year. She laughed off 28 police officers being shot in January and widespread criticism of and uh, widespread, let me try that again, widespread criticism of Democratic district attorneys, including New York's Alvin Bragg, who are going softer on criminals. Um, now, here's what she said. This is a quote. There's an alternative universe on some coverage. What's scary about it is a lot of people watch that. They think the president isn't doing anything to address people's safety in New York, and that couldn't be further from the truth. She then implied that, that people, um, Americans care more about what's happening in their lives than crime. So it's just, it, it's, it's, a, it's amazing. But is it surprising that this is the attitude that we are getting from the entire uh, upper level administration of this country. How do you think that's affecting, how do you think that's affecting um, the police officers in this country? It's affecting not just police officers, it's affecting the entire communities. And when you actually look at the reality, the numbers that are tracked don't reflect the reality. I mean, the, when you think about how often, even with our programs, how often officers are on scene first doing medical intervention, Police medical intervention and medical science is keeping down the homicide rate and the violent crime rates because you know they're not really tracking aggravated assaults and assaults because they can be different, varied from state to state. But when it comes to actual homicide or murder rates, cops and medical science are what's keeping that rate down. So people don't see the magnitude of what the actual issue is. So it, it just amazes me, but it, it, no, to answer your question, it doesn't really surprise me look at the leadership in our nation. I mean, back during World War II, what, like 76% had served in the military or as first responders. 
what are we at now? Almost out of the, it's like about seven or eight percent of them have actually served in military or law enforcement. So they don't know what it means to be a public servant. They're not seeing the realities of what we're facing day to day. You know, and we're so that's from the, the the top level of government. That's from the president. That's from the White House. Um, we we clearly see that there has not been any um, any effort on on uh, their part to curb criminality in the United States. But you know, it goes much deeper than that. It goes through all stratas of of our government, including uh, district attorneys. I often talk about on this show. Uh, and also when I do other news media like Fox, the fact that, that uh, I call them Trojan horse district attorneys are literally infiltrating the criminal justice system and destroying it from within. Let's talk about Chesa Bowden for a moment. Um, he's one of my uh, least favorite district attorneys. Uh, he is the son of uh, two radical murderers uh, who were terrorists killed police officers and others, one still serving prison time. And Chesa Bowden gets elected uh, by the people of San Francisco as their district attorney on the platform of basically not prosecuting criminals, but wanting to prosecute police. Now, this is really amazing because um, there's a headline that just came out and, and uh, it's it shows the it shows the depths to which some of these radical district attorneys will go in their hatred of law enforcement. So this is uh, the ongoing acrimony between the San Francisco Police Department and Chesa Bowden is escalating still with an officer facing assault charges saying that the district attorney's office lied about and allegedly buried additional evidence that would have justified his use of force. Chesa Bowden was not even San Francisco's district attorney yet when two officers allegedly beat up a domestic violence suspect in 2019. But Bowden had just been sworn in as district attorney when the suspect sued the San Francisco Police Department. As the suspect slash beating victim DeCarry Spears said police used excessive force, the baton beating from SFPD left him with a broken wrist and he was never charged by the district attorney's office. Bowden eventually charged the officer, Terrence Stangle, with assault and battery in December of 2020. And Stangle's attorney quickly fired back that the DA can't get his facts straight over the domestic violence call that prompted the incident. SFPD then released the audio of that 9-11 call, wherein the caller said, there's this guy who's beating up this girl and that he was holding her by the neck, like dragging her by the neck, unquote. Now Stangle's attorney saying there's more evidence that Bowden has withheld and is asking the judge to dismiss the assault. The evidence they claim is an interview the DA's office conducted with a witness who allegedly says they saw the suspect attacking the, 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 the victim. Now what happened was, a district attorney's investigator came forward and admitted that um, that he was told to bury the evidence that and he was afraid of losing his job if he didn't do that. So it's it's the law that a prosecutor or district attorney has to turn over exculpatory information on any prosecution to the defense. So not only did they not do that, they actually 
hid that evidence. And if it wasn't for a whistleblower in Bowdoin's office, we wouldn't have this information. So here we have a district attorney, the, the top ranking law enforcement officer in the county, and he is acting in a lawless manner. And, and this is one of the things that law enforcement officers are facing all over the nation. How do you think that affects the, uh, the, the policing in San Francisco? And you want to talk about just a, a hit to morale. I mean, how are you supposed to have to conduct yourself and do your job if you have no teeth to do any enforcement? If they're not actually following through with charges and let alone doing witch hunts on officers, how are you supposed to do your job? I mean, it's it's hard enough strapping on the uniform and doing what we do every day. But when you work tirelessly to put people behind bars who truly deserve it, just to have it thrown away or have evidence buried, it's, it's despicable. But we don't just have to have this happening in San Francisco. Here's, you know, the, we talk about the soft on crime and Jen Psaki says, what do you what do you mean soft on crime? Oh, that's not really even an issue. How about this this headline? Um, 26 year old child molester to be sent to a juvenile facility for girls because he identifies as a female. Now this is happening in Los Angeles where George Gascon, who is, by the way, Bowdoin is, there's now a recall effort, which I pray actually comes to fruition to recall Bowdoin because of, of his, um, commitment to end safety in San Francisco. So there's also uh, an effort right now to recall George Gascon, who ironically was the San Francisco district attorney <clears throat> before um, he, was, uh, he was installed by the Soros money as the district attorney in Los Angeles. And he is as or more radical than Bowdoin reports. District attorney George Gascon's office had refused to try this suspect as an adult, even though he was two months away from turning 18 when he committed the crime. And after being taken into custody, he suddenly started identifying as a trans woman. Uh, in the uh, U.S. state of California, a judge in Los Angeles court has ordered the 26-year-old child molester Hannah Tubbs, who was earlier James Tubbs, will be sentenced to only two years in a juvenile facility. Tubbs had pleaded guilty to the crime of sexual assault of a 10-year-old girl in 2014. As per reports, District Attorney George Gascon's office had refused to try Tubbs as an adult. Tubbs was two months away from turning 18 when he committed the crime. After being arrested, Tubbs had declared that he is trans and identifies as a female and prefers to be known as Hannah Tubbs. At the time of committing the crime, he was James Tubbs and was a biological male. He's also a serial sexual offender. LA Deputy District Attorney John Hadamy had been quoted by Fox News as saying, Tubbs is 26 years old. Unlike George Gascon's false narrative, she is not a kid. There was evidence presented at the juvenile proceedings that showed Tubbs sexually assaulted two young girls in two different locations in two different incidents in the past. The child victims will suffer lifelong trauma. Tubbs also has prior violent convictions and conduct as an adult. 
In 2014, Tubbs had walked into a bathroom at a store, grabbed the 10-year-old victim by the throat, locked himself with the child inside a stall. He had forcefully pushed the little girl against the wall, put his hands inside her pants. He stopped when another person walked into the restroom per reports. Despite the conviction in a case of sexual molestation of a minor girl and prior allegations of similar crimes, Tubbs will not even be registered as a sex offender. Far left district attorney George Gascon has been facing criticism over the case. He had declared that, quote, brain development isn't complete until 25 years of age, and he will not let, quote, children be tried as adults. But there's no soft on crime uh, issues in the United States, right? I mean, that, that doesn't exist, right? I, how, do you, how do you even say something like that? I mean, letting this this predator go on. I mean, he's probably going to get pro, parole or probation, maybe not even have to do the full two-year sentence there. But, I mean, the fact that you would – she was at like a Denny's or something like that, right? Un, completely unprovoked, grab her by the neck, and digitally penetrate a 10-year-old girl and commit several other felonies. This is a career predator. This is a career criminal. And you're incentivizing so many other people to try to do the same claims to get out of crime, to get out of actually paying – for their crimes and it's like the trauma that that poor little girl and the, his victims have to deal with for the rest of their lives for this moment for him to get a slap on a wrist like that is i don't care what gender you are i don't care how you identify you assaulted and you attacked a 10 year old girl who did nothing to you and you're going to be able to walk something like that because of some policies no it's not right it's 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 mind-boggling is what it is you know, we've seen we've seen all of this insanity, um, you know, towards law enforcement officers. But there's, um, you know, every now and then there's there's um, a little sway, if you will, in the anti-law enforcement movement. And and something recently came to my attention that I think is really interesting. And this is a Georgia bill um, that has been put forward uh, in Atlanta. Sworn peace officers in Georgia would not have to pay state income taxes under a new bill proposed on Wednesday. House Bill 992 calls for full exemption for law enforcement from state income tax. One of the lawmakers sponsoring the legislation is State Representative Bill Hitchens, a former colonel of the Georgia State Patrol. And Hitchens' son is currently second in command of that agency. The move comes after a similar bill was proposed in Kentucky as a way to incentivize more officers to work in the state. And uh, so that is currently being put forward. I find, you know, every now and then there's a little glimmer that perhaps the years of anti-law enforcement um, uh, media uh, propaganda that has, that has permeated this country and the, uh, the policies, the laws that have been put into place to restrict law enforcement from actually enforcing laws. Every now and then there's a glimmer of hope. Um, I think that this is a step in the right direction, don't you? 100%, I agree. I mean, it's it's tough enough doing the job and none of us got in this job to get rich. We're not gonna be making money off of it. When you have public servants that are risking their lives every day like that, to a small token of appreciation from society like that would go a long way for morale. I mean, I've also heard of a, there's another bill going through right now trying to give first responders the same GI benefits for home buying that our military gets. I would love to see that spread too. I mean, you got young cops 
that are still living with their parents or have to have roommates because they can't afford their own places in this housing market. You know, getting rid of income tax for police officers, I think, should spread across the nation and help them out. I mean, most of our guys aren't even living long after they retire. Let them enjoy the little time they have. You know, um, there's a there's a such a massive disparity in the pay that law enforcement officers receive across the country, and um, many people don't really don't understand or don't know they haven't been given the information that that some officers in this in in the United States are making barely minimum wage. Um, I was uh, I I had done a broadcast um, about a year and a half ago. Uh, during my end of watch segment on this show. And it was a 20-year a, a veteran police officer in a very rural area of Pennsylvania. And he had answered a domestic complaint, domestic dispute. In, now, it wasn't even his town. It was the next town over. But there was nobody from the highway or from Pennsylvania State Police that could, that could uh, handle it. So he got out of bed, went over to um, this, this house where the assault had allegedly taken place, walked up on the porch and was shot to death on the porch by the suspect. And uh, I, I eulogized him on this show. And then about two weeks later, I received a message from a coworker of his. And he said, Randy, I don't know if you know this, but he was making $9.28 an hour the night that he was killed. $9.28 an hour. I, I couldn't, I literally couldn't believe it. So I called the police agency that he worked at, a very tiny little police agency. And I asked the chief, I said, is this true? Is this what he was making? And she hung up on me. She wouldn't even tell me. Um, but I later found out that that was true. So here you have, you have police officers who are, you know, literally putting their lives on the line every single day. Um, another incident, I was down in, uh, in Alabama. Uh, we're a small agency of about 22 cops were mourning the loss of one of their officers who was pulled into an ambush and brutally murdered. And um, we, uh, we gave, the, my, through my charity, the Wounded Blue, which is the National Assistance and Support Organization for Injured and Disabled Officers, we gave every single one of those officers a program that we have called Code 4 Total Wellness. They get 24-hour day telemedicine with licensed MDs. They get financial wellness training. They get discounts on prescriptions and on all kinds of medical stuff. But most importantly, they get CAPER, the Confidential Assistance Program for Emergency Responders, which gives them unlimited visits with psychologists to deal with stress issues for they and their family. And we gave it. That's, we, that's what the, our organization does. We gave it to these officers. A couple of months later, the chief called me and he said, oh, I just want you to know that the impact that what you did for my people um, is amazing. And uh, he said, I wanted you to know what the impact was. And he says, they're using it, their program. They're, they're, um, you know, uh, they're getting major benefit from it. And I, he said, I wanted you to know the impact. And I said, well, I, I think I know the impact. And he said, I don't think you understand. My officers make $15 an hour. They couldn't even afford a copay to go see a psychologist. And, it, and I remember, suddenly I remembered as I was driving out of that town that I was visiting those officers at, I saw a Chick-fil-A sign opening, grand opening Chick-fil-A, starting pay $15 an hour. And I remembered that and I thought, oh my God, these police officers dealing with these traumas, dealing with these life-threatening situations, 
they're getting the same pay as somebody that's flipping chicken at the Chick-fil-A. And, and so, you know, when I, when I hear something like this, it just it amazes me um, that, there, that there is so little attention paid to a living wage for law enforcement officers. I mean, they don't even realize how difficult the job is, how many different roles and hats you have to wear and be a specialist in and just the amount of training to not even make a livable wage. It's like, I couldn't imagine doing that. And I thank you for the resources that Wounded Blue has given out to officers. I mean, I wish I had something like that after my cardiac arrest. I mean, I went through a roller coaster of emotions from depression to survivor's guilt to uh, you name it. It was, it was definitely a difficult time that I had to overcome. And it wasn't until I started helping others that I was able to get out of that. So I absolutely applaud Wounded Blue for everything you guys are doing to help officers. I hope that you bring in further attention to the, the pay disparities hopefully change some of these outcomes and get officers at least a livable wage to do what they're doing. Because none of us got in for money. We can at least help those who help us serve. Hey, you said something really critically important that I want to, I want to just briefly talk about. You said until you started helping other people, you were dealing with, with the emotional injuries that, that came as a result of your, of your, um, uh, your, the, the physical injury. And this is, I want to briefly talk about, this with you because one of the things that is so important about the wounded blue is it gives the opportunities for police officers who have been severely injured and or disabled to continue to serve as as a peer support team member and help other officers who are going through rough times help them to deal with this situation so that 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 statement about um healing through service to others is of critical importance and and it's such a valid valid point and so for those of you in the audience who are who are law enforcement or have been law enforcement and you for whatever reason um could no longer serve maybe because of physical or psychological injuries um the wounded blue is is there for you that's that's the reason that the organization exists to help you um, through peer support through the, all the many of the programs that we have but also if you want to continue to serve and you have you have dealt with the uh, with the post-traumatic stress issues you've dealt with the physical injuries and you want to continue to serve I got a, a call yesterday from an officer who had been severely injured um, and uh, after a 38-year police career, can't go back to work, but wants to continue to serve. So he said, how can I join the peer team of, of the Wounded Blue and continue? So if you're interested and you want to apply for uh, a, a voluntary position as a peer team member, go to our website, thewoundedblue.org. That's thewoundedblue.org. And fill out a contact form and let me know that uh, that, that, that interests you. And of course... Um, you know, you've been through this, um, you know, this is something that I think you, you can understand the, uh, um, incredible feeling that it comes when you give back, uh, to the people that you respect so much in the law enforcement community. Absolutely. And, you know, I get calls from guys who are retired that are left unfulfilled. I mean, when you have a life full of service and you, your body's used to the, the calls for service, the hunt, helping other people, 
you kind of lose your purpose. You kind of lose meaning sometimes when you walk away from it, but being able to do a program like this where you can still help others and share your experience is invaluable. I mean, it's helping other survivors. I get survivors from cardiac arrest that contact me all the time that are dealing with trauma. People don't, people have no idea what these people go through. I mean, from, I had one survivor that died like 26 times in a 48 hour period. His device kept shocking him and he just kept waiting to die and get shocked back to life. And that, that trauma, how does that not mess with you? And another one collapsed in front of a family member and you know, bust their head open, bite through their lips. Like it, it's traumatic for them watching their loved one on the floor dead, getting shocked with lifelessness in your eyes. It's not something that people think about. It's the same thing for law enforcement, all the trauma, all the PTS, all the things that we experience, being able to talk to other officers that have been through those down and out phases when you were irritable, when you're upset, when you constantly tired you can't figure out what's going on and why you're being an asshole having in programs like this where you can talk to somebody else who's been there and done that and kind of identify with it and see oh wait a minute it's not just me my adrenal glands are completely spent i need to get my vitamins up i need to work out i need to talk to somebody the little things that officers don't know because they, some of them are even afraid to go seek help and talk to psychologists because they don't want to get branded and get potentially lose their jobs and having programs like this with peer support is something i absolutely applaud I appreciate that. So, you know what, I, Brandon, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to be on our show. Um, it was an amazing, your journey is amazing. And the fact that you are, you are just so active in, um, in, a, in a proactive way to continue to serve, uh, even as you are still a reserve officer as well. Um, I, I, you're touching a lot of lives, you're saving lives. So um, once again, uh, Brandon, thanks for joining us here on the voice for American law enforcement. We'll stay in touch and uh, good luck on your, on your journey. Uh, thank you, brother. So as, um, as we get towards the, the end of our show, um, I, uh, I wanted, I want to just talk briefly about, um, about these, about these heroes, about these men and women who are serving. You know, we did recently, I'm going to, I'm going to read their names here shortly during our end of watch but um, two officers who were murdered in New York City. And um, while, the, while the entire city is mourning, um, there, a retired police detective uh, who, who, who was with NYPD had commissioned a statue. It's an absolutely beautiful statue that uh, uh, is... is Eight feet tall, bronze. He paid a hundred thousand dollars for it, and he dropped it off at the at the precinct where these officers served, and and it's on the sidewalk in front of the precinct. And I just I just want to do a shout out here to uh, uh, Patrick Brosnan, uh, who who um, who went through the effort, paid a hundred thousand dollars to have this incredible statue. Um, if you want to take a look at it, just just put in retired. Uh, NYPD uh, brings statue to NYPD. It's amazing. So um, each week we uh, we uh, eulogize the officers who were killed. Uh, first is police officer William Mora, Wilbert Mora, and Detective Jason Rivera of the NYPD. Officer Wilbert Mora and Detective Jason Rivera were shot and killed when they responded with a third officer to the report of a domestic dispute in West Harlem. When the officers arrived at the apartment about 6.30, they spoke with the suspect's mother, 
Detective Rivera, Officer Mora, went to the rear of the apartment to interview the suspect while the third officer stayed with the mother. As the officers approached the door to a bedroom the suspect was in, the suspect opened the door, immediately began to fire at the officers, striking them and killing them. The third officer returned fire, killing the suspect. Um, police officer William Mora and Detective Jason Rivera, New York City Police Department, end of watch Tuesday, January 25th, 2022. Deputy Sheriff Noah Rainey of the Carroll County Sheriff's Office, Indiana. Deputy Sheriff Noah Rainey and Corrections Officer Dane Northcutt were killed in a vehicle crash in Sedalia, Indiana, while responding to assist a member of the Rossville Marshal's Office during a vehicle pursuit. He was responding along Route 26 when his vehicle left the roadway near Washington Street and struck a utility pole. Other members of the Carroll County Sheriff's Office and the Indiana State Police came across the crash while responding to the pursuit. They immediately began to render aid, but both Deputy Rainey and Officer Northcutt, who was a passenger in the patrol car, succumbed to their injuries. A, uh, deputy Rainey has served with the Carroll County Sheriff's as a full-time deputy for three years. He had previously served Tippecanoe Sheriff's Office. Deputy Sheriff Noah Rainey, Carroll County Sheriff's Office, Indiana. Corrections Officer Dane Northcutt, Carroll County Sheriff's Office. End of watch, Saturday, January 29th, 2022. Deputy Sheriff Lauren Marie Redmond, Loving County Sheriff's Office, Texas. Deputy Sheriff Lauren Redmond was killed in a vehicle collision while en route to assist another deputy who had made a traffic stop at about 4.30 p.m. Tractor trailer attempted to turn in front of her patrol car, causing a fatal collision. Deputy Redmond was a U.S. Navy Reserve veteran. She had served with the Loving County Sheriffs for almost three years, previously served with the Hudspeth County Sheriff's Office for four years. Deputy Sheriff Lauren Marie Redmond, Loving County Sheriff's Office, Texas. End of watch, Saturday, January 29th, 2022. Police Officer John Painter, Bridgewater College Police Department, Virginia. Police Officer John Painter and Civilian Campus Safety Officer J.J. Jefferson were shot and killed while responding to a suspicious person call in a restricted area of Memorial Hall. As Officer Painter and CSO Jefferson contacted the subject, the man opened fire on them, fatally wounding both. The man fled on foot into the town of Bridgewater. He was taken into custody after wading onto an island in the North River. The man was charged with four counts of capital murder and additional felonies. Officer Painter was a former police chief with the Grottoes Police Department. Police Officer John Painter, Campus Safety Officer J.J. Jefferson, Bridgewater College Police Department, Virginia. End of watch, Tuesday, February 1st, 2022. Police Officer Dan Donald Sohota, Vancouver Police Department, Washington. This is absolutely tragic. Police Officer Donald Sohota was inadvertently shot and killed by a Clark County Sheriff's Office deputy while attempting to apprehend a robbery suspect who had attempted to break into his home. Suspect had fled police after robbing a gas station on Northeast 117th Street in Vancouver. Officer used spike strips to immobilize the car, but the suspect was able to flee on foot. As deputies were searching for the suspect, a woman called 911, reporting that a man who fit the robbery suspect description was pounding on her front door and asking for help and claimed he had been involved in a collision. She informed the call taker that her husband was an off-duty officer and had gone outside to detain the man. The suspect and Officer Sohota became engaged in a struggle, during which Officer Sohota was stabbed several times and dropped his firearm. 
The suspect broke free and began running towards Officer Sahoda's house. Officer Hoda retrieved his firearm, ran after the suspect as Clark County deputies arrived. One of the deputies perceived Officer Sahoda as the armed suspect and shot him, not realizing he was an officer and the homeowner. The suspect was taken into custody. He was charged with attempted first-degree murder, robbery, first-degree burglary. Police Officer Donald Sahoda of Vancouver Police Department, Washington. End of watch, Saturday, January 29th, 2022. Each of these law enforcement officers gave their lives in the line of duty protecting and serving the people of their communities. May they rest in peace. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to join us here on the Voice for American Law Enforcement. I am Randy Sutton. You can find me on Facebook at the Voice for American Law Enforcement. You can also find me on LinkedIn, Randy Sutton. You can contact me if you want uh, at uh, randy at thewoundedblue.org. And now, if you want to support the men and women of law enforcement, I urge you to go to the website, thewoundedblue.org. Check us out, see what we do and who we are. If you need help and you are an officer or have been, please reach out to us. If you want to help those men and women and you can donate, please do. And this is Randy Sutton. Thanks again for joining me here at The Voice for American Law Enforcement.